who wears hats? What is this, the 1930s? We don't need hats. As Jeff You're is literally wearing, wearing a, a hat. hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I literally have one on here. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 12th, 2021. And I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from New York is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you today? I'm great. You're sitting in front of a wall of hats as uh, as you've always wanted, I'm sure. I know. This is the dream. No, I'm, I'm uh, working with our great producer, Sarah Shackett. Uh, it has been deemed that I no longer need to podcast from a closet. I have enough um, stuff on the walls at this new apartment. And enough hats. Finally, enough hat. I mean, the hats alone. Yeah, your hats have a, have a podcast value here uh, mm-hmm. beyond just that they exist. Yeah, they can be a work write-off now. Yeah, there you go. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. I, you know, I really can't get over the wall of hats. It is a wall of hats, kind of like those cubicle bookshelves, you know, like square shelves. And the one I see is all... Phillies hats. <laughs> there's at least there's a Sixers. There's at least eleven Phillies hats, and that's just one shelf. Yeah, I've got all the baseball playoff teams laid out at the top shelf, um, and when a team eliminates another one, so I actually need to put the Boston hat on top of the Tampa hat, uh, <laughs> you know, to kind of organize it. Soon it will be a pyramidal. Yeah, you have to. You have yeah, to. It'll there be a rules. pyramidal structure with the champion on top amazing amazing i like that the the entire point of the hats is not to wear them anymore it's it's only to display them who wears hats what is this the 1930s we don't need hats as jeff is literally wearing wearing a hat hat. yeah (laughs) yeah i literally have one on but it's not branded with a team so it's a lesser hat in my conception of things maybe i'm being a hat snob Wow. All right. Well, you guys, let's uh, let's let's start by talking about about the big news out of the NFL yesterday. Not the Ravens win. Oh, it wasn't the Ravens comeback. That was the fun news out of the NFL yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so Las Vegas Raiders coach John Gruden resigned after emails had come out over the past several days in which he made racist, homophobic and misogynistic comments. The emails were uncovered during an NFL investigation into workplace misconduct within the Washington football team. They were sent to Bruce Allen, president of the Washington team at the time, and included photos of topless Washington cheerleaders. On the one hand, I guess it's a positive step for the league that this kind of stuff will, in fact, get you forced out. But I got to say, the first news about this that came out, which was a a racist comment directed at Player Union Executive Director Damaris Smith, that that should have been enough. Like, why was he still coaching in Sunday's game? Why did it take... Oh, there are many, many more emails. Like, wasn't that first? Why did why did this keep going on? I guess is my question. What time was that? That what day was that? Was Friday? that Saturday or Friday? Friday. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, the NFL is like this well-oiled machine that they really can only do things on Monday and Tuesday because God forbid anything messes up the games on Sunday. So that's the cynical take. I mean, I think the maybe more pragmatic take is that they were still investigating and still trying to figure out, get their ducks in a row. I, I, I don't know. It does seem like the writing was on the wall prior to that game, right? 
Yeah, it's kind of a it's it's kind of a weird like there's two ways of looking at it because you're right, Sarah. Like you would think based on what was already known even before that game that there would have been some kind of I don't know. It, it, there's there's a player conduct policy. Is there a coach conduct policy? Like you you would think that there would be something there where at least maybe they would suspend him while they were um, awaiting the investigation. But yeah, at the same time, it did move pretty swiftly that. You know, he went from seeming like he had kind of deflected this to being out, you know, in 24 hours or whatever. I think it was Booger McFarlane had a great take on that during the Monday Night Football game, which was that essentially all of this Gruden, you know, the comments that he made, they they fly in the face of the image that the NFL is trying to project about itself. Yeah. Uh, and I think probably, you know, the racist comments, of course, flew in the face of the fact that the league has end racism uh, pr- printed in the end zone, you know, and all these things. But also, I, I got to think almost the comments about the head injuries were as or more damning in in terms of the way that the NFL is trying to kind of present itself. That's like still the ticking time bomb behind the NFL from like a bunch of different uh, points of view, whether it's legal, whether it's just about the viability of the sport going forward. That's something they don't want the optics of of one of, if not the highest paid coach. I don't know where he ranks in that. He's got to be up there uh, in the league making these flippant comments or sort of almost saying that he disagrees with the idea of uh, an emphasis on player safety uh, at a moment when the NFL is trying to do everything they can to try to, you know, make fans forget how violent and, and unsafe football kind of fundamentally is. I mean, I kind of wish just overt racism was enough, but that he 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 trashed gay players. He trashed female referees, like literally everyone there was. I don't see how there was any way for him to to continue. Um, The concussion stuff is really interesting. And I do wonder how much that that moved the needle for the NFL office. Like they're fighting their own battle on that front and, and don't need the extra heat from Gruden in that in that area. I, I mean, not maybe that's a cynical take. That is a cynical take. That's what I bring to the show, Sarah. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, what a what a mess. And I feel I feel for his players. I feel for his players who had to deal with that over the weekend and now, you know, now have a, a different a different coach and and are being asked about it constantly and ugh, what a what a, what a mess on today's show we will discuss a medley of wild events that happened over the weekend from lows for many nfl kickers and the university of alabama to highs for the chicago sky and the baseball litigators who spent hours arguing about ground rule doubles then we'll preview the chaos to come in the nhl and finally we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week So much sports happened this weekend that we decided we kind of need to talk about all of it. We're at least going to try. Maybe the biggest news of the weekend was something that not many people expected to happen before the SEC title game. Alabama lost on Saturday by a field goal to Texas A&M. On ESPN's Debatable, Dominique Foxworth discussed the implications of the loss for Alabama's chances to make the college football playoff and for how we think about the Aggies now, too. The funny thing about beating Alabama is like you you talk about having good losses and uh or bad losses a high-ranked team presumably is a loss that you can explain away but when you beat Alabama you also become a more highly ranked team so like Alabama is so good that no matter who beats them we automatically assume oh they must be good 
So, Jeff, does that hold water for you? Is Texas A&M a better team than it has seemed so far just by virtue of beating Bama? Or was that outcome more about the Tide's performance? I think they're a better team than certainly a lot of people thought, but but a lot of people thought for good reason. I mean, they, they had looked terrible um, going into this game, coming off back-to-back losses. Okay, you know, losing to Arkansas, granted an Arkansas team that, that had got killed two weeks ago, uh, so that didn't look much better, but... And then losing to Mississippi State at home at Kyle Field. Um, but even prior to that, you know, beating Colorado 10-7, um, you know, not a really good Colorado team. So they had just looked shaky. And, and Alabama, you know, by contrast, had looked like a full Alabama Nick Saban freight train that we've come so used to. But, I mean, at the end of the day, they're obviously a team that has a lot of talent. You know, they, with Jimbo Fisher, they, they, they have good recruits and a team that had high expectations at the beginning of the year. I forget what they started the year, but I think they were ranked, you know, up in the top 10. Um, does this mean they should be in the college football playoff and uh, should be a top five team? No. Because they have those losses, uh, you know, that you can't take those away. But it was very impressive. It's not Alabama just doesn't lose very often in the regular season. You know, you, you go back to the 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 game where they lost to Texas A&M with Johnny Manziel. They've only lost to Auburn twice or three times. They've lost to Ole Miss twice and LSU once. And that's it. I just named all their regular season losses. And that's that's that's, that's eight, six, six or seven years of, of regular season football. Um, so it is rare, but at the, at, at, at the same time, like they, they're not going to go undefeated every year. They do lose. They have these hiccups. It happens once in a while. And the beauty of Alabama's position is that they went out, they're still in the playoffs. So it, it ultimately doesn't really even matter that much for Alabama. I will say that I, that I kind of hate this kind of take though because it, there's so much circular logic involved in it like i i think it's important that we're willing to adjust our our priors based on what happens in games but we also shouldn't pretend that AM's two losses didn't happen and the college football season is so short that like you don't have time like you do in college basketball to like figure it out and you can sort of pretend your early season losses didn't didn't happen because you're a better team now that's not how it works for for most teams in college football. You don't get like, well, you lost to a couple of not great programs and also just barely beat Colorado. I guess we'll ignore that because you beat Alabama. I, I don't know. I don't like that because like if Oklahoma had lost to Texas on Saturday, I think they would probably be out of the playoff picture. And that why is it so different? I mean, I know the comp- the level of competition is different, but it is maddening to me this is the answer to all the stuff we've been talking about about the conference realignment this is why texas a&m yep. wants to be in the sec they are given this opportunity yeah. and, and they're also afforded an opportunity you know on the other side looking at the other side of the field to lose a game against an elite opponent and still have a chance whereas if you're in the big 12 or you're certainly in the group of five you know you have afforded no such luxuries you have to win out so it answers all our questions about why these, why the SEC is so enticing for these programs, and why we're seeing. Uh, we saw Texas A&M and and their opponent this week, Missouri, go there, and and we're seeing more teams go there in, in Oklahoma and Texas. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit more about about that Oklahoma Texas game because uh, it was also wild college football. That was crazy. Yeah, that, yeah, that was the craziest day of college football. I, on memory. It really might have been, Granted, right? As I said, you know, my memory, I, I can barely remember. <laughs> In your memory, right, which goes like two weeks ago. Last weekend, Complete yeah. go- goldfish memory, but <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly the most exciting I remember. Yeah. Well, so Oklahoma pulled out the win there, but it, it, it was a it, it was a wild ride. And I didn't leave that game feeling great about Oklahoma. I still see them as a pretty vulnerable team. I don't know what you guys thought from that. Was the, was the comeback enough to, to make you believe in Oklahoma and the benching of Spencer Rattler? The benching of Spencer Rattler, uh, yeah, g- generally, well, this goes back to preseason expectations, right? Like he was a Heisman, you know, uh, one of the favorites going into the season. And so you, uh, I can't remember a case where a team made a big comeback like that by benching a Heisman favorite in favor of uh, someone unproven. I mean, it has happened. We, we all think about like Jalen Hurts getting pulled for Tua uh, in the national championship game. That was a pretty bold move that led to a, uh, a comeback. So maybe there's echoes of that there. Uh, maybe these coaches know what they have uh, more than the media does going going into seasons, but it still was just like, man, if you told me that Oklahoma was going to still be undefeated at this point and have made that big comeback uh, and needed to make that, you would think Spencer Rattler would be the reason, not yeah. sort of getting rid of him being the reason. Caleb Williams, let's remember, is not some guy coming in off the street. I mean, he was a huge recruit, a five-star recruit. He's the number two quarterback recruit in the whole country. So as as high as the expectations were of a Rattler, you know, that, that that's a pretty good backup to have. So it is interesting going forward if they stick with him, then I actually would say because of how ineffective Rattlers looked, like I, I'm a little higher on Oklahoma now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's switch over to baseball quick because uh, we, we got to talk about the, the MLB playoffs. We've had our first accusations of cheating, which I think that means the playoffs are really happening. So that's exciting. Uh, we have to talk about the play in Sunday's Rays-Red Sox game. Kevin Kiermeyer hit a long fly to center that bounced off Boston's Hunter Renfro and landed over the fence. It was ruled a double. And the runner on first, who pretty clearly would have scored had the ball not left the field, was held at third. The Rays came up empty in that inning, in the game, and as it turns out, in the series. Ground rule doubles are, are often pretty messy, and, and the officials defended this situation as just how it would go down in, in M- any MLB park, no matter, you know, no matter the circumstances. My question, Neil, is this. What would prevent some unscrupulous outfielder from trying to do that on purpose to prevent a runner on first from scoring? Nothing. I mean, it really, I I think it is actually (laughs) up to the umpire's discretion. That was one of the things where the umpires were allowed to place the runners. So if they could sort of tell that it was on purpose, they could conceivably have given them the extra base or given them the run, allowed the run to to stand. The way they were describing it, though, is because and maybe it played into it some the fact that it was clearly unintentional. He didn't really even seem to know where the ball was. It was kind of spinning around. <laughs> right. It had a lot of backspin on it, and it, and he couldn't get a handle on it. You know, and the fact that um, who was it uh, Diaz uh, who who was trying to uh, round uh, round yeah. third that he had not quite stepped on third uh at the moment that that was happening he was he was in the process of rounding it but had not actually touched the bag 
those things I think played into their um, decision to be like, okay, it's a two base, you know, we award you two bases and and sort of go uh, leave it at that. I will say also though that uh, MLB and the umpires and whatever were extremely lucky that. Uh, the next inning, it ended on a two-run home run and that the winning margin was two. If the winning margin had been one, it would have been not a great look. It would have been pretty ugly and there would have been a lot of controversy around it. As it stood, you know, it's kind of tough for the Rays to... uh, Maybe they could say, oh, well, if we score that run, who knows, maybe we score another one uh, and this, that, and the other. But it's kind of... strategy changes. Right, the strategy changes or whatever. But it's a little tough on its face to be like, yeah, you know, you're complaining about losing one run off the board and then you lost by two. You know, you probably were going to lose anyway. You know what would have prevented this? A normal stadium (laughs) with a a regular size wall in the outfield. Jeff, this type of thinking led us to the cookie cutter, (laughs) uh, like Three Rivers, Cincinnati, you know, all these like ballparks that were exactly the same dimension in the 70s. We don't want to go back to that. Come on. I mean, sure, that's true. But that that part of Fenway, oh, there's always madness happening. They called the Bermuda Triangle out there. The guy caught and flipped over and the security guard was cheering. Yeah, of course. I couldn't remember who did it. Goldfish. Um, but the uh, at one point I could have told you the security guard's name. Anyway, go on. When you oh when you allow one team to play in a gimmicky funhouse of a stadium that was built the same week the Titanic sank. Yeah, there was a play this year. I looked it up, and you know sometimes they'll go uh, in the Red Sox favor. Sometimes they will go against against the same team. Uh, it was sometime in August. Uh, it was Wander Franco of the Rays hit a ball that hit off the. You remember this? Hit off the top right part of the monster. You know, to the left of the yellow line that is just arbitrarily drawn there, deciding home runs, landed on top of the center field wall, and, and then the umpires had to discuss it for 15 minutes and then decided that it was a home run. So weird things will always happen in that in that park. It's I just to be clear, I'm in favor of it. I was in favor of the hill uh, that the Astros used to have in center field. I'm pro. Quirks in Are stadium. you called it pro catwalk? Oh, catwalk uh, in is Tropicana a great Field. question. <laughs> sure, I'm pro any any sorts of. But novelty, you just called uh, it a gimmicky funhouse. Yeah, I, okay, but in a I good like way. Oh, that's good. Okay, I, I see. Who yeah, doesn't want to go thing. to a good funhouse with the weird mirrors and the you know walls? You know, like <laughs> I, I'm in. Yeah, I will. I mean, I, I, there was, you know, chirping uh, between the fan bases on this and, you know, Red Sox fans rightly pointing out that Rays fans don't have a ton of, of room to talk given their given their gimmicky funhouse. But, you know, as just an, un, an unbiased observer of this game, I was like, what is happening? He clearly would have scored <laughs> um, and was not was not thrilled with that. Well, we're we're getting down to it with these uh, division series. Uh, we uh, they're they're just about all wrapped up. We'll uh, we'll see what happens today and over the next couple of days. But very exciting time in baseball. Let's move on over to the other playoffs going on in the WNBA. We have we're having a historic finals with two teams that had to stave off single elimination facing off for the title. This is the first time under this playoff format that neither of the top two seeds made the finals. The Chicago Sky took game one from the Phoenix Mercury on Sunday. Neil, how does our model see the rest of the series? 
So right now we give this guy a 74% chance of winning the finals uh, on the basis of obviously winning game one being a positive thing, but they also have a higher rating uh, in, in ELO uh, than the Mercury. But it, it's interesting to me, I guess it speaks to basketball having just you know, we can be more uh, confident in the results that we see contributing to uh, how good we think teams are. But on its face, you wouldn't necessarily think that the sky would be higher rated because the sky were a 500 team during the regular season. They went 16 and 16 and Phoenix went 19 and 13, which actually earned them a lower ranking in the West than the sky's record earned them in the East. Uh, because of uh, conference imbalance. But uh, still, you, it's, it's interesting that you kind of see the ratings being what they are. And still the highest rated team are the Sun. I feel bad for them. Uh, you know, they, they had this historic regular season. They went 26 and 6. They go into the playoffs against a team that went 16 and 16, 10 fewer wins. And four games later, it's over. Yeah, you know, I think it, it really does speak to the, like, this this format is I mean we're getting a little bit more you know an interesting result this year because we didn't have the the teams that get the buys in the in the final but it really does speak to like this isn't the ideal format it would be really nice to have longer series for all of the the rounds of the playoffs I assume that once we get some expansion in the WNBA we won't have, you know, such a high ratio of teams in the league making the playoffs. I just keep going back to the Mercury almost lost to the Liberty in that first single elimination game. Now the Liberty, I love the Liberty. They were not, they weren't the best team in the league. They should not be in the finals and they really almost did, you know, move on. So it's, um, yeah, single game eliminations are bad. This is just my, my take all the time, unless that's how you play every other game. Except in March Madness. Sure, or football. Like, that's fine. You can yeah. do that. <laughs> that's fine. When you don't normally have that kind of a of a series setup, it's not good. But yeah, this is a it's a it's a fun finals. It's fun to see um Candace Parker, uh and Diana Taurasi, Brittany Griner, Skylar Dickens Smith, you know, Courtney Vandersloot. There's some really amazing players uh in these finals and uh high level of, of basketball being played. So I'm excited to see what happens Wednesday and Friday. We'll see if we get um how long how long this this uh this this finals go. All right, let's move on to the NFL, which also had kind of a ridiculous weekend. We had some very close games and a great many missed field goals. Jeff, how bad a week was it for kickers? And did anyone anywhere have themselves a worse week? It was um, it was a terrible week for kickers. <laughs> it, it was, uh, first of all, in terms of... Uh, extra points it was the worst week ever i believe it, it, there was one last night uh blankenship missed one for the colts and that was 13 missed extra points um on the week which is the most ever granted you know it's only been a few years since they moved it back um which by the way talk about a great rule change that is mm. so much better to make the the pat not you know as automatic as it was for so long um, it's so much more fun. I mean, kickers we saw don't that. agree, though. <laughs> kickers don't agree. But at the same time, you know, kickers are doing crazy things. Where this is a year where we had the 66 yard walk off kick, you know, and we're seeing a lot of them attempt these really long kicks, too. So I think it's, it, you know, overall, kickers are doing some great things as well. This was not a weekend for that, though, it, particularly um, if you were 
a member of the Bengals or Packers. Oof, uh, that, that game, game brutal. <laughs> that game was insane with uh, uh, Mason Crosby missing three chances to win the game, and he eventually and redeemed was, himself. Was Twenty. Yeah. Yeah, he did. It was um twenty twenty five kicks missed all weekend, which I think was the most since nineteen eighty seven. So. <sighs> A really not a great week for kickers. <laughs> it was a lot of weather, though, a lot of wind. You know, there's some rain going on throughout the league. So so maybe we can blame it on that. Sure. I don't know. It, did, it does feel like something else is going on here. I don't know what, but like just a lot of, of, of bad. Do you think that, you know, that, that coaches are more willing to go for it, both on fourth down and for two-point conversions, that kickers are feeling the pressure? Like that is that is there a psychological effect on kickers because of the the change in approach? That's my new my new working theory that is completely unprovable. So Oh, so they're feeling neglected? Yeah, they're like I got to really I got to really do this otherwise they're going to go for it next time and like or, you know, putting that extra pressure on themselves. I don't know. The other thing from the weekend I just wanted to to bring up really quickly was last night's uh, Ravens-Colts game in which Lamar Jackson went 37 for 43 with 442 yards passing and four touchdowns, along with 62 yards rushing, because why not? Uh, he had a game. He had a second half. Like, oh, most of that, he had more than 300 yards in the second half. That uh, uh, that was a show in that second half in overtime. That was a, that was, that was a good time. That game was... Wow. Oh, it was amazing. And uh, yeah, the fact that um, it, it was strange, like Monday Night Football, they were talking about all the Gruden stuff and, uh, and, and because the game itself started out looking like the Colts were just dominating, it, it, it seemed like it, it was sort of one of going to be one of those nights that was overshadowed by things off the field. And then the Ravens were just like, uh, let's go out and win this game. Yeah, how about us guys? And Lamar Jackson, <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that the numbers that he had. So he was actually only one yard of total offense removed from 500 in the game, which would have been uh, just the 14th in history. As it is, he does rank, he's tied for 14th all time uh, in terms of most total offense by a player in a single game. I think the stat goes back to like 1969 or something like that. Also, the uh, funny slash I ironic thing is that the um 100 yard rushing streak that they had that they sort of unsportsmanlike uh lee uh extended in the previous game uh it ended but i think they're, they're yeah. glad to uh have it end the way that it ended because lamar was throwing a lot yeah yeah that is that is hilarious that it ended like that um, all right, well, let's wrap this up with our Survivor Pool picks. We each won last week, if just barely, for, for some of us. Uh, the score stands at Sarah and Jeff at four, Neil at three. And the order this week is Sarah, Jeff, Neil. So for my pick, I am going to take the Rams, who are at the Giants. Um, I like I like that pick. Jeff, who you got? I'm going to take the Colts, even though... They lost last night. They did look really good in that first half. I think they're getting healthier uh, defense, at least for half the game, looked good. And even though the Texans were a little bit better than expected against the Patriots and Davis Mills played a lot better, I, I still think they're pretty bad. So Colts. All right. Okay. So you guys have taken the two good picks. Now I'm sort of left with these <laughs> drags. Uh, and so it's really a question of, which team, which NFC East 
team I want to bet against? Do I want to bet against the Eagles or do I want to bet against the football team? And I think I'm going to bet against the Eagles, unfortunately. Uh, and I'm going to take Tom Brady. Yes, they're on the road at Philly. Yes, Philly coming off a win. Um, but I'm going to take the Bucks. All of these picks are a little bit are a little bit scary. I mean, the Rams are playing at the Giants. Hey, the Texans have looked better and the Colts did, you know, end up falling apart last night. Um, and then Bucks on the road. That's these are. This is going to be a fun and uh, you know nerve wracking weekend. All right. Well, we'll be ca- keeping track of all of these stories across sports. But first, let's take a break. We'll be back in a moment to talk about hockey. As if we didn't have enough sports on our plate, the NHL is back. Games start tonight with my favorite team, the Seattle Kraken, taking on their. Yes. In- They're taking on their immediate example for model expansion teams, the Vegas Golden Knights. Vegas, as it happens, looks to be among the teams that we see as a top contender coming into the season. But in the Puck Soup Podcast's NHL preview, Ryan Lambert gave a ringing endorsement of a different franchise in the West. Of any team that could win a Stanley Cup, I I think Colorado would be at the very top of my list, ahead of Vegas, ahead of uh, any other team in the league, as I just said. So... But with that having been said, eh, it's a fucking random sport. Fucking Montreal yep, Canadiens made the cup final last year. You know, I, I may not be the, the biggest hockey fan, but even I know that it that hockey is, in fact, a random sport. But to try to make a little sense of the chaos of hockey, 538 has built an NHL model and prediction dashboard, which we unveiled on the site last week. So, Neil, talk to us about our model. Does it also have Colorado at the, at the top of the heap? It does, well, kind of co at the top of the heap with the Tampa Bay Lightning, the defending champs, and the Golden Knights. They're all at 12%. But uh, going back to how it works, essentially it's the same as a lot of the other models that we have, especially the sort of early prototype versions of the ones that we rolled out in basketball and baseball and football, uh, where it it uses ELO ratings, which we've used a lot of times in the past and, and probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with. But... For those who don't know what those are, those are ratings that track the relative strength of competitors. Uh, So that started out in chess and uh, we've extended it to teams and many, many, many different sports. Uh, And how it works is the rating sort of when you compare one team's rating to another one when they're playing each other, it spits out a win probability and then the game happens And based on the result, you allocate some of the points from the loser's rating to the winner's rating, and then you move on and they play their next games. And the same thing happens over and over and over again. And it really gives you a snapshot of how good we think a team is at any given moment in time, how good we thought they were, if you kind of look back in retrospect. And we use those then to simulate the season schedule tens of thousands of times and track how often each team wins the Stanley Cup and, you know, makes the playoffs and all kinds of the usual things. So for this one, uh, hockey is one of our more simple ones, at least right now, the, the way we kind of rolled it out at first. Uh, it doesn't really know about any of the transactions that happened over the off season, And there were a few, um, we had to kind of ballpark where we thought that the Kraken should be. We gave them a 1490 ELO, which felt right. And we, we sort of averaged together a bunch of different, um, estimates of how good, uh, various predictors thought they would be to kind of get that number. But yeah, it's, it's a little bit on the simple side. Maybe we'll make adjustments to it going forward. But again, hockey is a, like the take said, a very random sport. So I wouldn't be surprised if you get most of the way 
toward whatever prediction value you're going to get out of hockey just by using kind of a simple model and then regressing to the mean between seasons. And that is how we get the numbers for Colorado and Tampa and, and Vegas are just taking their numbers from the end of last season and kind of regressing them back to the mean uh, as as part of the preseason rating process. Uh, and like I said, those three, those three as favorites seems right to me. And, and it's tough to kind of pick between them. Uh, like Vegas beat Colorado in the playoffs last year, but then Vegas turned around and lost to the Montreal Canadiens, which is a team that lost more than it won, as we noted on this um, on this podcast. Uh, and that's including the playoffs. They lost more than they won. So, yeah. Uh, and, and then Tampa, really main, mainly the big question I think we have is whether Tampa can kind of keep steamrolling their way through or if their attempt at a three-peat is going to get derailed. Because three-peats are really rare in the NHL, certainly rarer than in like basketball. We see three-peats happen. In fact, championship sort of dynasties tend to almost happen in groups of three. You saw the Bulls had a couple of those, the Lakers. And so in hockey, you get two peats sometimes, like the Pittsburgh Penguins did it. They've actually done it on multiple occasions. If you go back to the 90s, the Red Wings uh, did it. But you, you, I think you have to go back to the early 1980s New York Islanders to find a team that won three or more straight cups, which really speaks to the difficulty of stringing together that level of excellence across three or more straight seasons. Yeah, those three favorites seem like pretty well consensus favorites going in. But but again, you know, weird things happen. Well, let's talk about my favorite team, the Seattle Kraken, which where we had to sort of put them put them where they are in the model. Jeff, what are you expecting from them in their first season? Well, I, I think the Knights proved that, you know, the way the NHL expansion works, that you can be competitive right off the bat. And I think that's certainly true with this team they have. I mean, with Grubbauer, uh, you know, Colorado's goalie last year, they're pretty solid there. And, you know, it's hard to see on paper them doing that much. I mean, they definitely, like, picked a... a a team of solid, albeit mostly unanimous contributors, um, but they have good players. So, you know, I think the main thing benefiting them is the division they play in. I mean, the Pacific just looks like by far the weakest. Uh, the The Kings are bad. The Sharks and the Ducks also look bad. All the California teams look really bad this year. Um, and then you have the Canucks and the Flames who are, you know, uh, not great. And then the Knights, obviously, and the Oilers who, uh, you know, obviously have McDavid and Drysaddle and, and two huge stars, but have been not, not, you know, a force otherwise. So I think they'll benefit from that. I think they'll be competitive. I could see them finishing middle of the pack, maybe sneaking into the playoffs. So, you know, at least on the model alone, I think there's like 12 teams that have worse odds of, of making the playoffs than, than the Kraken. All right. Well, so one one last storyline I wanted to touch on that that we just can't quite get rid of is uh, Canadian teams. Oh. We are almost three decades removed from Canada winning a Stanley Cup, despite Montreal's best efforts last season. Jeff, which of the Great White North teams do you think has the best chance of breaking the streak? I mean, it's got to be the, the right answer is probably the Maple Leafs, even though the Maple Leafs playoff record is oh, just, you know, so untrustworthy them winning a bunch of series and winning a cup it's just hard to predict but i think at least in terms of regular season like the the most formidable team is still got to be toronto based on 
you know, having Austin Matthews and Tavares and Nylander and Marner and, and all these guys, um, you know, they did lose their goalie, Freddie Anderson, on Colorado, but they got Jack Campbell, who's, who's, I think, pretty solid. So I think they'll be probably the best Canadian team. I mean, the other one, you know, speaking along the same lines of the Kraken, is maybe Edmonton, you would think, having uh, two of the three, two of the three best players in the league would be beneficial and enough to make you a force uh we haven't seen it yet but um i i always think edmonton at least is a threat especially in that division and i'm higher on montreal than those puck soup guys i think they have some nice players but (laughs) (laughs) they're they're pretty far down in our odds yeah um i was gonna say yeah our our model thinks that the the best hope for canada are of course the leafs and the oilers and then the jets uh who I think fly under the radar also. I mean, they haven't done much to... Fly. Yes, they fly. They fly yes. under the radar. Uh, uh, they, they've done not that much to prove that they shouldn't be flying under the radar in recent seasons, but I still think that this is you know, a solid team that maybe could put something together. Uh, and then the Flames are another team in that category that I thought would be you know, pretty decent last year, and then they sort of fell apart uh, down the stretch of the season. I think there were also a lot of COVID things happening in the um, the Canadian division toward the end of the, the regular season last mm-hmm. year. So you can't discount that. The Canadians, we only have them at 47% to make the playoffs. And I think that that's kind of shockingly low for a team that um, went to the Stanley Cup final. But at the same time, you come back to losing record last year across the whole season, minus nine goal differential during the regular season. They have some players that are exciting and young. I think about Cole Caulfield, but at the same time, like Carey Price just stepped away from the team. Uh, Shea Weber is like on long-term injured reserve or retired or something. Like he, he's not with the team. They, they have a lot of holes that they need to fill. And I just didn't think that they were that good to begin with. They proved me wrong during the playoffs, but at the same time, you know, I just don't see them doing that again. Um, but it does feel weird to have the. Def- I guess you can't call them defending conference champions because of the way that the the setup was <laughs> right. last year. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Stanley Cup finalist, uh, maybe they yeah. can hang up a banner. Stanley Cup runner up. Yeah, Stanley yeah. Cup runner up. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll start to get answers to all of these questions tonight, along with how my how my Kraken will fare. Uh, let's take a break for now, and we'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, what do you have for us? So yeah, I want to start off our rabbit hole by reading a tweet from SportsCenter uh, from last week on October 7th. They tweeted, it's official. New York will go a full decade without one championship from the NBA, NFL, MLB, and NHL, and then exploding brain emoji. And on this, they they also included, (laughs) they had like some art with it that had sad Sam Darnold, sad Carmelo Anthony, sad John Tavares when he was with the Islanders, sad David Wright. That was a little uh, little rough. (laughs) They they had uh, uh, sad Aaron Judge. They had sad Daniel Jones. They put uh, Josh Allen in there, which I thought was kind of uh, kind of interesting because, you know, the Jets and the Giants are in there. They're New York teams. They carry the name New York, but they play in New Jersey. Buffalo, 
is actually the only NFL team that plays in the actual state of New York, but they're not considered a New York City team. So it's a little, uh, I'm kind of confused about what the definition that they're using for this, but we'll move on. Um, They also had sad Henrik Lundqvist and irate Brooke Lopez, I guess like that, that was the picture they could find for him. Um, He was the only one that wasn't sad. He was just kind of angry with a call. Uh, But it really sort of got me thinking about New York sports. And we know about how bad the Jets and the Giants have been simultaneously uh, for a while. We know about the Knicks. We know about the Mets. We we know about all these these teams. But it really did hammer home just how kind of rare it is to have uh, New York affiliated teams not win. Like you would think, given the sheer number of teams... And certainly given the history that at least one of the teams would would have had a breakthrough over the course of a decade, New York is still, of course, the leading city in terms of major sports championships. This is I found a Wikipedia article called List of U.S. Cities by Number of Professional Sports Championships. Uh, and yes, to our soccer-loving listeners out there, they do include MLS in that. You're welcome. Uh, so New York has 61 major sports championships. That's actually 21 more than any other city. Boston, despite its uh, recent surge, is second at 40. Then you have Chicago at 32, LA at 31, Detroit and San Francisco Bay Area tied at 22. The Giants might change that in a few weeks. Uh, and then you have Philly, Pittsburgh, you know, all under 20. So historically speaking, New York has been the most dominant city uh, in terms of professional sports championships. But I want to know basically like what is responsible for this current era of of teams not winning. I, I put together some theories or sort of thought through some theories. And one of them, which I agreed with, we, we were talking about this in Slack uh, when this tweet came out, was put forth by Santul Nurker, who's been on the show. He's our uh, great copy editor at 538 and, and uh, occasional hot takedown contributor. And his theory <laughs> is just that the Yankees are the center of gravity in all of this the yankees uh when, when they're doing well it sort of propels the uh the city's championship total and when they're not doing well and of course they haven't won since 2009 not for lack of trying that it it really sort of takes away one of the big aspects that uh has led to that total and they have been responsible for 27 of those 61. But then again, that means more than half of the championships were won by teams other than the Yankees. So those other teams are at least carrying the weight, historically speaking, uh, in some way, shape, or form. And they also have fallen short. Like without the Yankees, if you don't include them at all, New York City would still be second on the list of, of championships. Um, so, so it's not totally skewed by the Yankees. Now, another theory that... I want to explore with you, Sarah, because you put that forward is the idea that is it just because money doesn't win championships anymore that in an early era of sports, you could kind of assemble these teams without really fear of running up a big payroll. And of course, since wealthy owners lived in New York and could make money off of attendance uh, in in the most uh, populous city, it was this virtuous cycle where then they they were able to kind of spend more on players uh, and and win that way. But as things have kind of leveled off, you've got other regions of the country, uh, you know, sharing in some of the wealth and, and building their own teams off 
off of that and salary caps in some of these sports that it's just not possible to exert that advantage. What do you guys think about that theory for New York's uh, absence from the championship circle? Yeah, I think that's that's probably part of it. I don't know. I still come back to mostly that championships are really are fluky. And some they're they're random in some ways. You know, we see that we see that all the time with the the teams that you know were the favorites in whatever system to win. You know, fall short early, whatever. You know, if the Dodgers don't don't win against the Giants, that will be you know they were they were our favorites. Certainly, they were the preseason betting favorites. And you know, I think it's hard. It's hard to win a championship. So like the Yankees. Small things could have gone differently over the past decade. They were in the playoffs basically every year, and they they just got a little bit unlucky or just fell short in whatever way. And maybe some of those previous championships were just getting lucky and maybe shouldn't just be ascribed to their greatness. You know, maybe we should be a little bit more level-headed. This attack on Derek Jeter is just unheard I of. No. No, it really is. Yeah. Um I'm defending Aaron Judge and, and taking down Derek Jeter. That that feels right actually. That feels that feels really right. I mean but then you look at like the um Super Bowl wins for the Giants very fluky (laughs) i mean like winning is really hard and weird and you have to get lucky and sometimes you're gonna have unlucky stretches and and i think money is definitely a part of that and the the parody in all these leagues does make it harder for for a team to just dominate it did not make it harder for the patriots to win a bajillion super bowls so well that's the counter example yeah is that boston you know how how do we explain because i do think that boston is the sort of reverse side of the same coin of this is that as new york has kind of declined in its championship prominence boston has taken off like crazy. Uh, and is, is is it just random? I mean, I think that that is sort of our um, our inclination. I, I mean, I think that the time frame is random because you have had a lot of like uh, New York teams going through these kind of rebuilding patches in this period. But I do think it is undeniable that there are some poorly run franchises well, and that was gonna be in the my New York other area. theory. <laughs> And I think, you know, the James Dolan teams are problematic. I think the Rangers are a little bit different now. I think they seem to be putting together some pieces to be pretty competitive. But the Knicks we've seen have just even dropped off the the NBA uh, grid to the point where they're not a desirable place to go to get these stars, which you would think the city alone in Madison Square Garden used to attract it. But it's not the case now. You know, Brooklyn obviously is a little bit of an upstart and they're they're trying to put things together there. and, And maybe they're the answer to sort of bring New York out of this um death spiral losing but although that goes back to what we talked about like if brooklyn won would new york care like that's there are teams that matter to new york city to people who live here and 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 i i mean i will go back to this like this is about the yankees this is about the yankees not not winning right yeah because like does anyone i mean obviously jets fans care that the jets are, are, are currently bad. Right. No, but that's another poorly run franchise right. that has made bad decisions, have made bad draft picks, made yeah. bad coaching hires, made a lot of mistakes. Um, the Giants have made some some of such mistakes too, but they're obviously a better run franchise on a whole. And and then you look at, you know, you bring up Boston, those are well-run franchises. The Red Sox are a very well-run franchise by all accounts. 
and and the Patriots, as as painful as me to say, are an of incredibly well-run franchise um, that is competitive almost regardless of personnel and, and doesn't have the same cues, uh, excuses. Maybe Except this year isn't the when greatest. They lose maybe, Brady. Not, yeah. maybe the last two. Maybe it's a weird time to be complimenting the Patriots, but still, with the the in terms of the decision making, because that ultimately, I think the players will change, but the the sort of front office decision making is the more consistent thing. Like non. Tom Brady players changed over over those two decades, I guess, maybe is the right way to look at it. <laughs> right. Well, thinking about the players is also interesting, too, because like in an era where players seem to be able to sort of choose where they go more, does that have an effect? You would think that that would have been a benefit to New York um, and that it would have attracted more players. But instead, they've gone elsewhere, it seems like. Is that just the Knicks? I mean, is that... Is that what it what it boils down no, to? No, but I mean, look at look at the Mets. They went on this like uh, you know drunk spending spree, spending spree yeah. and, <laughs> and got got plenty of players to come. They still didn't help because of, I think the fundamental problems with that franchise. I didn't even mention them, but uh, they <laughs> goes around saying, granted, they did go to the World Series in that. Uh, time period so they were close and we're very close to winning and then we'd this conversation wouldn't even be happening that's i still think the flukiness of it is yeah i agree with you too though yeah i also i love this this whole like thing because it's so it's great for people who like new york sports and for people who hate new york sports it's fun either way it's really it's the per it was the perfect tweet i think i think that we can we can agree on that All right. Well, thank you for that, Neil. That was very fun. And that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Metlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.